The Vermont Conversation with David Goodman is brought to you by Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility and by Vermont Student Assistance Corporation, Green Mountain Power, Concept 2, Norwich Solar Technologies, The Alchemist Brewery, Let's Grow Kids, UVM Medical Center, and nearly 700 business members of Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility who believe that sustainable business practices value people, planet, and profit. Welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. With the trillion-dollar coronavirus bailouts, has Donald Trump embraced big government? Or is the U.S. sliding towards fascism? For answers, I turned to the German-born sociologist Amitai Etzioni. He was a former senior advisor to President Jimmy Carter, and he's now a university professor and professor of international affairs at George Washington University. He is the author of over 30 books. Professor Etzioni, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Delighted to be with you. Let me uh, begin with a story that you have out uh, this week in the publication, The National Interest. Uh, It is entitled, Donald Trump is Redefining the Role of Big Government in America. Explain what you mean by that. Well, uh, when the uh, uh, progressive uh, uh, people... uh, so that the government is now sending people uh, $600 uh, unemployment benefits every month till July and sending people uh, $1,200 uh, kind of basic income and expanding, uh, covering the cost of people who need uh, treatments for the uh, pandemic. Uh, they thought that uh, uh, there is a basic shift in uh, public uh, uh, understanding of the role of government. There is now a willingness to allow the government to take uh, on uh, many of our social problems, to introduce Medicare for all, basic income, and even the new Green Deal, which would also cover the environment. And uh, I believe uh, that's a mistaken conception on two grounds. First of all, what uh, Trump did is really not uh, create any new uh, government agencies or programs or uh, safety nets. Uh, Much of this money was turned over to uh, uh, private businesses. So for instance, uh, when he used uh, some of these funds to bring in from overseas, very badly needed uh, medical supplies, vents, uh, mask and such. Uh, he did not turn them over to FEMA, uh, the government agency, to hand them out where they are necessary, but he turned them over to businesses who then sold them uh, to the highest bidder, not not to the uh, states that needed more. So, in effect, it's government uh, money which went into the private sector. And when he uh, arranged, when his Congress set up a lot of money to help uh, small businesses. They were not giving to the Small Business Administration a government agency to hand out where it's necessary, but we're turning over to the banks, uh, which turned, uh, took a cut and then channeled it off to their favorite customers and to large corporations. And I could go on and on and on. So 
and by the way, it also continues even during the pandemic to deregulate, which means in effect cutting government. So the only thing which is big about the, the new big government which Trump created is huge deficits, uh, huge public expenditures. Now, even those uh, uh, people say, well, we spend now a trillion on this, trillion on that. Why not uh, spend it next year another trillion on Medicare for all? But there is no way on earth Congress will continue to authorize spending three trillion here, three trillion there. Uh, and even if they did, the economy wouldn't tolerate it. So to make a, a long uh, answer short, the only way this government, the new government, is big is big in its deficits and its uh, layouts for the private sector. Well, you reference in your article uh, the New Deal, uh, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, which was a response to the last Great Depression. I don't know if what we're entering is a Great Depression, though some writers are saying that and economists. What do you think would be a more promising or constructive approach uh, to solving the current problem? Well, first of all, I would focus on the pandemic and not an economy. It's a, a tragic uh, mistake which Trump is making, uh, in part because his instinct as a businessman, he looks everything through the sign of the dollar rather than uh, what saves uh, uh, lives and in, in part because it believes that he needs a humming economy uh, in order to uh, get reelected. Uh, that means endangering, in my judgment, hundred thousands of Americans because we are opening too quickly, too soon, before we have a massive, reliable, rapid testing and uh, contact tracing, which we've seen in Israel, in Germany. In South Korea, in Tehran, these are the instruments you need in, open, in order to open safely. So you can isolate the pockets of new infections uh, and uh, quarantine only those people and let the rest go to work. But we don't have at the place the number of tests needed. And above all, the tests which, again, the private sector provided, much of them are very unreliable and we surely don't have contact tracing in place. So in short, in short, we don't have the tools for a massive opening, and so we now reopen the economy at a clear danger of endangering a lot of Americans. So I would do exactly the opposite. I, I would uh, open up only uh, as uh, Governor Cuomo put it, at Fauci, Dr. Fauci put it, as the virus tells us that we are ready, when we can control the virus, keep it contained, uh, and keep people uh, uh, safe, it would be ultimately even better for the economy. Because if we, if we go now, we're going to see uh, new spikes, uh, that will keep consumer home and worker home, uh, and will not be good for the economy either. Now, um, you have some personal experience in your career of, uh, of, you know, coming into positions of leadership after a crisis. You were a senior advisor to President Carter in the late 70s. Now, of course, Carter took office in the wake of the Watergate scandal, 
in the aftermath of the Vietnam War. So he was also leading a, uh, you might say, a traumatized nation or a nation in recovery from, you know, some existential body blows. What did Carter do uh, in terms of leading the country at that time and, and that you think are important? Well, uh, Carter was, uh, the year I joined him was the last year of his administration, and that was during the horses situation, and uh, Iran was uh, absolutely unwilling uh, to make a deal with Carter. Some people believe they were waiting for the next president before they were willing to make a deal. Uh, and so, uh, first of all, he suffered a great deal. Uh, but there are daily headlines about uh, one more day Americans are held hostages in Tehran. Second, when it came to the economy and his main concern was rapidly uh, a rising inflation, which was going from 14% to 20%. And gold was uh, uh, zooming, which is another sign of public panic. And uh, uh, then he had has to face OPEC, which quadrupled the price of oil. So uh, Carter tried to appeal to people's patriotic sentiment, and he called Americans to unite uh, and fight uh, together uh, by uh, traveling less, consuming less gasoline, uh, and uh, uh, otherwise uh, fighting inflation as a first national priority. He was unable to convince the American people uh, of his uh, message. So I think his idea of uh, 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 calling up people to be better citizens and uh, rather than shoving one, other, one government program after the other down the throat, cursing them, was a good strategy because Americans, as we see now, are very resistant to government coercion. But unfortunately, for reasons I'm not completely clear, his appeals uh, uh, fell on flat ears, and he was unable to get Americans uh, become patriotic, excited, and do what we're doing. As a result, he, he lost the election very, very quickly. Uh, to add a personal note, I was supposed to go to a party celebrating his re-election, and I was driving to the Hilton at 8.30 in the afternoon, in the early evening, which, while the polls were still open in the, in the West, and I heard on the radio that Carter conceded, so he was doing so poorly that he conceded even before the election, the ballot places were closed. What was your role uh, in the Carter White House? I was called senior advisor. Uh, but nobody listened to me, and, and frankly, didn't listen to anybody else either. <laughs> Why did nobody listen to you? No, it's not a question of listening to me. Uh, 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 Carter, uh, as you see, but even, even today, is a man of uh, uh, enormous clarity, who, who trusts his own judgment, and he, he would hear people, but then he would proceed and do exactly what he thought before he heard you. And so... Uh, if you talk to anybody else who was in his administration, his affection, with one exception of somebody who convinced him to deregulate the airlines, 
uh, party, uh, all and all other issues. Uh, Trump, uh, Trump, what a, what a slip. Uh, Carter uh, would look in his uh, inner conscience, look at his values, which he had very strong, very clear ones, and follows his own light, uh, full speed ahead, never mind the dogs. I have often heard Carter referred to as uh, that he will be viewed as the greatest ex-president, and that's in acknowledgement of his, the humanitarian work he's done in the years since office. How do you assess his presidency? You're absolutely right. His, his presidency, he did all the failures in the book, which political scientists uh, list, and invented some new ones. His ex-presidency for many years was outstanding. He really showed us how an ex-president can conduct himself with honor and dignity, not selling out and not going around the world trying to make money uh, and really acting for, for peace, for conflict resolution, helping refugees. Then uh, more recently, uh, there seemed to be some chemical changes almost, and he's getting into... Uh, 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 in, a, in a different phase. So they're, they're, from my viewpoint, there are three quarters. The president, the ex-president, the recent one. Hmm. Uh, you're listening to the Vermont Conversation, and we're speaking with Professor Amitai Etzioni, who is a university professor at George Washington University. Uh, professor Etzioni, your latest book, which came out in the fall, is called Reclaiming Patriotism. And you've written in an essay that you really struggled with that title, and you really questioned, or perhaps others around you really challenged you on using the word patriotism because of the way that it has basically been appropriated by right-wing nationalists. So talk a little bit about what you mean by patriotism. So, uh, patriotism, and I, I quote here uh, Charles de Gaulle, is love of country. Uh, xenophobia is hate, uh, nationalism is hatred of other countries. So uh, it's essential for us to, to accept uh, whatever criticism we have of the United States. And uh, there's a long list, uh, and there are many flaws we need to struggle to overcome. Uh, that we are uh, uh, loyal and, and good Americans, that we have to recognize it's a country which was born as the first uh, global experiment of a republic uh, rebelling against an authoritarian king, established an enormous precedent for other nations to follow to date, that we sent millions of our young into harm's way to bail out other countries, uh, to bail out Europe to uh, twice against fascism, that we were again the country which stood up against communism. So without for a moment glossing over uh, slavery or discrimination or injustice. There's a lot in the history of this country to uh, be proud about. We still are the strongest defenders of the First Amendment, of the freedom of speech, despite what all the critics say. Uh, as other countries have many more laws, including Germany and Canada and Britain, which limit speech. So, uh, in short, uh, we have to start by recognizing it's a great country with a very proud history with a lot of flaws to repair. The reason you have to put it that way is, first of all, it's true. Second, it's politically uh, 
unnecessary alienating. Good Americans who would join our fight for reform otherwise, when we tell the story the other way around, then we claim that this is a country uh, where uh, everything you touch is uh, uh, full of uh, uh, racism and prejudice and discrimination, and uh, that we make light of uh, whatever is good uh, in this country. It reminds me in the 60s what progressive people did to the family. And originally, uh, it was written off as a bourgeois institution, and in Kramer against Kramer, the uh, mother had to leave her child and her home and her husband in order to find herself. We later learned to realize that, no, we are not against families. We want an egalitarian family. We want in a family in which husbands and wives have the, the same right, in which they distribute uh, the, the duties in, in an egalitarian fashion. But we're not against families. So the same way we used to cede family to the conservatives, we should not cede uh, patriotism uh, to the right wing, but uh, we should uh, uh, realize that love of country doesn't mean ignoring that it needs some major, major structural reforms. So you begin your your book, Reclaiming Patriotism, with an introduction in which you talk about saving democracy through national community building. But uh, the subheading there is how to cope with polarization. I don't know if you can think of a, a time that's been as polarizing as this, perhaps during the Vietnam War. But how do you answer your own uh, question there? How to cope with polarization in this current moment? So I, I came across uh, an analog which helps me think that so. And that's a study of uh, marriage. And the study compared uh, families which uh, remained married, which had successful marriages, with families uh, which the conflict was so overwhelming that they divorced. And it found out, at least to my surprise, that the number of conflicts in both families was very similar. But the families who stood together learned to fight better. And they did it in two major ways. One, which actually is less important, they developed the rules of fighting fair. So you don't demonize the other side. You listen and validate what they say before you respond. Uh, you have cooling off periods. And second, you remember that while we are at the moment uh, vying for changes in power and assets, uh, we also have some common goals, let's say, taking care of the children. And exactly what we need now on the national level. We need, first of all, to return to rules of fighting in a civil manner, not demonizing the other side not calling the other side deplorables, but calling the other side people who uh, have been misguided by demagogues, who need more information, who need, we need to reach. So we need, as to, first of all, to return to dialogue so we can talk to each other across the divides. And second, we need to remember that while we're trying to reconstruct the boat, we still are, uh, need to keep it afloat. So we still need to worry about national security and public health and the economy. 
So we still have goals we share with everybody. So we put in a plainer language, a shorter language, we need to learn to fight with one hand tied behind our back. No, we should not suppress conflicts. I don't think we should ignore differences. We just have to learn how to fight fair and remember that in the end we are still members of the same community. What do you, can you what do you compare our current moment, both politically, socially, economically? What other era does it most resemble, and uh, and what is the way forward? I, I I'm not an expert in American history. I came to this country after my high school and uh, BA days, so I didn't take classes in American history. So I'm not sure uh, where uh, to compare it to. But the thing which is happening is at the beginning of the Trump administration, we felt that the institution may hold and protect the foundation of democracy. And so uh, we would curb him and would allow us to rebuild relatively quickly uh, after his term is over, or I'm afraid his terms are over. But this, I'm increasingly less sure about that because now he very rapidly succeeds in undermining the institution which is supposed to curb him. So he succeeded in really preventing Congress from doing his job by refusing, allowing his uh, staff to uh, testify, by uh, not providing documents. He's undermining the Department of Justice. He's undermining Inspector Generals. Uh, he's uh, loading the courts that the Federalist Society is helping. These conservative judges, he has more and more people in the Supreme Court, and it may not be done there yet. So I'm increasingly worried. For my, for my history, unprecedented situation where the institutions, the, the guardrails of democracy are surprisingly weakened to the point that I'm not sure at all that if he will refuse to accept the results of the election, uh, what exactly do we have to enforce them? You should note that when there was recent an election in California in which the focus was that the Republicans are going to win, Trump started saying the elections were rigged just in case he would have to challenge the results. So we are facing, I don't know if it's unprecedented, but surely a very, very serious challenge to the democratic process. Uh, Professor Etzioni, your family grew up in Germany. You were born in Germany, and uh, of course you were just a child during the rise of the Third Reich. Um, but you saw the beginnings of fascism and what it looks like, which is an experience that no one in the United States has. Is there anything about the current situation in the United States that concerns you, that evokes memories of what you saw and your family experienced uh, in the 1930s in Germany? Yes, and that one I not only experienced, but I studied some. And what you, and again, there is a parallelism and a very sad one. And that is that the progressive forces start splintering and weakening each other and putting up weak candidates. So what happened in Germany is, of course, Hitler was rising, but the democratic forces were weak and fighting each other, and uh, instead of uniting, 
to fight the, the rising fascism. So uh, I tear my hair out, uh, whatever is left of it. When I, I read all the left sectarians and all the people on the left who say they're not going to vote uh, because it doesn't really matter, there's no difference between the Democrats and the Republicans uh, or who spend their energy uh, in uh, fighting each other or insisting that we uh, uh, put into the platform this or that uh, uh, extreme uh, uh, platforms which will just make it ever more difficult uh, to win the election. From my viewpoint, Trump is such bad news for anything a progressive person cares about. If it's the environment, consumer protection, protection, worker protection, healthcare, I cannot imagine a progressive issue which Trump does not hurt deeply, profoundly, and he's not done. He's just about not taking on Social Security. So uh, if I uh, was a, a progressive person, I would say at this moment, nothing else matters. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Uh, I will defer everything else till I get the person out of the office, not because we don't need structural changes, but because, first of all, you have to avoid more catastrophes. Uh, then we can talk about how we make progress. Do you think it's possible that fascism, if if, could come to America? Well, it, it is a question of wording. I don't like to use that word because uh, it, it does create again an unnecessary uh, debate and opposition. Whatever we call it, uh, the fact that a demagogue uh, reaches directly to the masses, which is what our founding fathers. They're so worried about they, they call the mob. The, the reason they created a representative government is to prevent people from acting on the impulse. So now we have a demagogue who, so Twitter, can rile up masses, uh, and uh, and as I already mentioned, undermine the fabric of democratic institutions, and we uh, we are in serious trouble. Let me just give one more quick example. Recently, at Texas, there has a Republican governor. Uh, they did not allow opening tattoo parlors. And the tattoo parlor opened, and then he got himself five militia people with assault rifles to protect his shop from the police, which, of course, didn't dare close him. When we get to that kind of wild west, whatever name you call it, uh, we are in a deep, deep... Uh, trouble, and we need to put everything together uh, to be sure uh, that in November uh, we, we change course. Well, Professor Etzioni, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thanks for having me. Amitai Etzioni is a former senior advisor to President Jimmy Carter, and he is now a university professor at George Washington University. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this in all shows at vermontconversation.com. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. The Vermont Conversation with David Goodman. This special feature from Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility is underwritten in part by... 
Vermont Student Assistance Corporation. VSAC helps students of all ages save, plan, and pay for college and career training with education and career planning services, need-based grants, scholarships, low-cost education loans, and Vermont's official 529 college savings plan. Norwich Solar Technologies, providing complete clean energy services to Vermont schools, towns, nonprofits, and businesses. Green Mountain Power, delivering clean, cost-effective, and highly reliable power to customers and offering cutting-edge products and services to reduce costs and carbon. The Alchemist Brewery of Waterbury and Stowe, proud B Corp, using the power of business to support a clean environment and economic opportunity for all. UVM Medical Center, Burlington, Vermont, the heart and science of medicine. Let's Grow Kids, a statewide campaign about the need for more high-quality, affordable child care in Vermont to better support our children, families, communities, and economy. Concept 2, designers and manufacturers of Concept 2 rowing oars, indoor rower, ski erg, and bike erg, and proud to support nonprofit groups such as the Green Mountain Club and nearly 700 business members of Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility who believe that sustainable business practices value people, planet, and profit.